The reason why men no more regard warnings of future punishment is because it doesn't seem real to them. A Sermon by Jonathan Edwards And Lot went out and spake to his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. Genesis 19.14 It is probable it had been no unusual thing before now for Lot to be reproving and warning the people of Sodom, among whom he dwelt. We read that his soul was vexed from day to day at the sight of their wickedness, as in the second letter of Peter, the second chapter, seventh and eighth verses. And probably God sent him therefore that end to reprove and warn them. For God's manner is first to use all fair means for the reclaiming of a people by counseling and warning of them before he destroys them. But it seems the preaching of Lot among them had proved ineffectual, and they continuing yet universally corrupted, so that there was not ten righteous men in the whole city, and it may be not one but Lot. God sent two angels with fire and brimstone to destroy them, who came first to give Lot warning of it that he might escape the common destruction. And God had mercy for his sake upon all his family, and ordered the angels to give warning to them, that they all might have opportunity of escaping. As is in two foregoing verses, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law, and thy sons and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place? For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Accordingly, in the verse of the text, we have first an account of Lot's warning of his sons-in-law. Number one, he gives them notice of the impending destruction. The Lord will destroy this city. Number two, an exhortation to save themselves. Up, get ye out of this place. Second, we may observe how they received the warning, but he seemed as one that mocked to his sons-in-law. That is, it seemed to them that he was only in jest, that he only came and told them so, to see how he could scare them, that he did not believe it himself but only endeavor to make them believe that the city would be destroyed to deceive them and make sport of them. Thus, the word mock signifies, Judges 16, verse 10, And Delilah said unto Samson, Behold, thou hast mocked me and told me lies. That is, you cheated me and pretended to tell me where your great strength lay to make a fool of me. These sons-in-law, not believing, nor giving any heed to what he had told them, they did not hearken to them in flying out of the city, but remained in it and were destroyed with the rest. There was only he and his wife and his two daughters that were brought out of Sodom, as you may see in the 16th verse. Doctrine the reason why men no more regard warnings of future punishment is because it doesn't seem real to them. In speaking to this doctrine, we shall show, number one, what it is to realize a thing and how they are without such a realization of future punishment. Number two, we shall prove the doctrine. 
Number three, she'll give the reasons why future punishment doesn't seem real to wicked men. First, but as to the first particular, there are these two things in realize in a thing, or necessary in order to things seeming real to us. Believe in the truth of it, and having a sensible idea or apprehension of it. To fully believe the truth of it, so that it should seem really true. Thus, those that don't much regard threatenings and warnings of future punishment do not. They don't know but that it may be true. They don't fix it down in their own minds that it is not so, and in their words when they speak about it, they seem to take it for granted that it is so. "'Tis what they have been bred up in and have been taught from their infancy, and everybody where they have lived has professed to believe it, and they have heard abundance of preaching about it, and their education and example makes them say as the rest do. They believe it as the papists do transubstantiation and purgatory, because so their fathers believed and so the church believes.' But they never since they were born were properly convinced that it is really true. They have been born away with the stream of universal custom, in a sort to believe it. But they never had any proper light that really convinced them of it. Their belief is not a belief upon any evidence shown to their minds, but only a yielding in some measure to education and example. Now such a sort of belief that is not built upon evidence will go but a very little way towards influencing more minds, and to the making of them show any great matter of regard to it. And oftentimes they expressly question the truth of it. They say within themselves, how do I know that there is any such thing as hell? And maybe it is only a scarecrow, an invention of men. Men believe all sorts of opinions, and how do I know that the opinions of this country is right, or that the scripture is the word of God, or that there is any such heaven and hell as the scriptures tell us of? Such kind of thoughts come into the minds of many wicked men that harden their hearts. Number two. This is also implied in a thing seeming real to us, that we have a lively and sensible idea or apprehension of it. Though things that we are daily conversant about, that we see and hear and feel, they seem real to us as we have a plain and sensible idea of them. Thus, by seeing a man, we get a more real and lively apprehension of him than by being told of him or seeing his picture. Though things that we are conversant with when we are awake seem more generally real than our imaginations when we are dreaming, because our ideas are abundantly more distinct and lively. Now the greater part of men have not a lively, sensible apprehension of the wrath of God and of eternal punishment. It never was set before their eyes and brought into clear view. They have very little of a notion what the wrath of God is, and so it doesn't appear very terrible to them. They have but a faint, dull idea of the misery of the damned, and that is a reason that when they are told of it, it doesn't terrify them. It seems to them like a fable or a dream that makes very little impression upon their minds. We shall take notice of this in four particulars. Number one. They don't have a sensible apprehension of the nearness of future punishment. 
If they continue in sin, it is but a very little while before their punishment will come upon them. As to sinners that are grown up, that continue in sin, most of them will doubtless be in hell within fifty years. But they have not a clear apprehension how soon forty or fifty years is gone, and how short it will seem when it's past. They don't have a lively sense of the uncertainty of life and how little foundation they have to depend upon living to the end or one half to the end of such a course of years. And so hell appears afar off to them when it is near at hand, even at the door, and oftentimes when there is but a step between them and hell. Number two, they don't have a sensible apprehension of the manner of their punishment. It is a strange punishment that is appointed to the workers of iniquity. It will be a torment inflicted after a new manner, in a way they have never experienced anything like while they were here in this world. And it is a punishment that wicked men have but a very little notion of. They hear that the wrath of God will be poured out upon them, but they don't know what that pouring out of God's wrath is. They hear that there will be horror of conscience, but they know but very little what that horror of conscience will be. And therefore, pouring out of God's wrath and horror of conscience doesn't seem very dreadful to them. They hear that they shall be tormented by devils, but they don't see how. And knowing but little of the manner of the punishment, they are not much disquieted by fears of it. Number three. They don't have a lively, sensible idea of the greatness of the punishment. They hear that it will be intolerable, exceeding dreadful, that will fill their souls with misery, that it will be like fire and brimstone and the like. But they nevertheless seldom think what is meant by these expressions. They never felt anything of it, and never saw anybody under this punishment or that ever did endure it. And so they have no notion how dreadful it is, no, not the hundredth part of the greatness of that misery. And so they are not terrified and affrighted by it. Number four, they have no lively, sensible apprehension of the eternity of this punishment. They consider but little and apprehend but very little what is meant by those words eternal, everlasting, forever and ever. They know but little what it will be to bear misery forever without change and without end. They don't imagine how it will be when they come to be in hell to think with themselves, here I must be forever and ever. There is no escape. There is no help. There is no comfort. They have very little of an idea how such a despair will sink and oppress them and will feel like a mountain of lead that will lie upon them and crush them. Section 2. But now we proceed to the second thing, which was to prove that this certainly is a reason why men do no more regard warnings of future punishment. Number 1. The nature of the thing renders it impossible, but that if it did seem real to them, they should regard it and be greatly awakened and terrified by it. Such men hate misery as well as others. Torment is as dreadful to them and these think they can bear as little or can bear the thoughts of as little. And the eternity of torment is dreadful, and contrary to their nature as to others. And therefore misery, or the greatness, and eternity, and the danger and expectation,
expectation of eternal torment would certainly terrify them and make them as uneasy as others if they were equally sensible of the danger. If men were really convinced of the truth of the threatening of future punishment, and had a clear and lively apprehension of its being far more dreadful than any temporal calamity, then they would certainly fear it more than any temporal calamity, and would take more care to avoid it, and would every way manifest themselves more concerned about it than they do about poverty or sickness or disgrace or any other temporal evil. If it seemed real to men that there is a hell of everlasting burnings, that all that die impenitent and unconverted must immediately be cast into as soon as they die, and never be delivered from, it would be impossible in nature and a self-contradiction that they should be easy and merry, and that they should go cheerfully about their worldly business and recreations while they are in an impenitent and unconverted condition, as impossible as it is for a man to love pain and delight in being miserable. Number two. It is evident that this is a reason because in things that they do realize they are more prudent. In other things, when they realize to themselves the danger of any calamity, they are concerned and are careful to use means to avoid it. If men are in danger of poverty, of losing their estates or only a part of it in a lawsuit, or are in danger of falling into disgrace, or if there be a mortal infectious sickness come near them and they are exposed to it, or if it be a time of war and their lives are much exposed to the enemy, they are concerned and careful and cautious concerning those things. They are awakened by such dangers as the experience of the whole world teaches, because they can realize such things. They can see with their eyes, and they are very sensible how it would be with them, how miserable they should be if they should be poor, or if they should fall into disgrace and be laughed at, or should go into captivity. They are sensible it would be very ill with them in such a case, and they are concerned and afraid and are contriving ways that they may escape these evils. This makes it evident that it is only for the lack of realizing in the like manner of eternal misery that they be not also concerned about that in contriving how they shall escape it. For this is an infinitely greater calamity than any of those evils forementioned, and of infinitely longer continuance, and it is a more common evil. It is a more common thing for men to go to hell than to fall into poverty, and natural men are a great deal more in danger of losing their soul than of losing their estates or their credit while they live. Number three. It is evident that this is a reason why men no more regard the threatenings of future punishment, that it doesn't seem real to them, because when once men are brought in any considerable measure to realize it, they are immediately awakened. If they are brought to think within themselves, it is true God will execute his wrath upon the workers of iniquity, and have anything of the dreadfulness of hell set before their eyes, it startles them. Tears do immediately take hold on them. They are set a-trembling in a sense of the danger of their condition. The only reason why one is awakened and not another is because one realizes it and not another. And this is a reason that the same persons that were formerly secure are awakened, because future misery is more plainly set before their eyes than once it was. Section 3 
We will now, as we proceed in the third place, show why future punishment doesn't seem real to them. They're often told of it. They have it described, yea, they have it declared upon God's authority. God declares that he will surely do it, and men live under the preaching of it all their days. And they are instructed and warned privately by their parents and friends. And they hear many reasons sufficient to convince them, but yet, after all, it doesn't seem real to them. And the reasons of it are these. First, their souls being wholly possessed by a sinful and wicked nature hinders any truth of religion taking impression on it. The nature of the soul in a natural state is contrary to every truth of religion. It opposes and resists all that light. The soul, being of a contrary nature, is prejudiced against it, and the prejudices of nature are the strongest prejudices. This opposition of nature to divine truth causes that the being of God in another world doesn't seem real to them. This sort of truth doesn't take root in the soil because the soil is not of an agreeable nature to it, and indeed is of so contrary a nature that it resists it. It rebounds from it, a seed that falls upon a rock, it doesn't sink in at all. Sin has a great influence to benumb and stupefy the understanding, and to make plain and certain things seem like uncertain dreams and fables. Number two. Another reason is they have been used to concerning themselves only about sensible things, and are used to depend upon their senses only, and therefore nothing seems real to them but what is sensible. The business of their life has been about things that they can see and hear and feel and taste. Their thoughts and designs and meditations have been confined to such things. They have tied down their minds to such objects of their senses, and therefore nothing seems real to them, but only what they can see or hear or feel and so on. They don't realize hell is real because they never see it and because they never felt it, and because they never heard the shrieks and cries of the damned. Hell is another world, and it is invisible, and therefore it doesn't enter into them that there is any such place. And if there be, the pains of it are not so much sensible as mental and spiritual, and therefore it doesn't enter into them that they are very great. God's wrath doesn't seem very terrible to them because they never see God and because they can't see with their bodily eyes what sort of being he is. Number three, they don't see that a great many other men besides they don't seem to make very much of it. They aren't alone, but multitudes of others don't seem to be any more concerned about it than they. Yea, it may be the greater part and same men that are much esteemed are reckoned to have much understanding cunning men, men that are rich and in a great place, and this hardens them and makes them to be the further from realizing of it to themselves. Application The improvement we shall make of this doctrine shall be to offer some considerations to make future punishment seem real to you. Number one, to make you really believe that there is such a thing, and number two, that you may have a more lively, sensible apprehension of it but that you may really believe that God's wrath will in another world be eternally executed upon impenitent sinners, I shall endeavor to show how unreasonable the contrary supposition is, how absurd it is to suppose that there is no future punishment of sinners by the following considerations. Number one, 
If there be no future punishment, then men don't need so much to be afraid of it as they are of offending princes. Whether the scriptures be the word of God or not, yet it is certain vice and wickedness and immorality is offensive and contrary to God's will and law. It is against the law of nature. God, when he created us, he created that law in us. He gave us such a nature that tells us and tells all mankind what vice is and wickedness is, and that it is not right, that in doing of it we do that that we ought not to do. This the nature that God has given us tells us, and the natural conscience of every man tells him. And the light of nature tells and did tell the heathen that such things are very offensive to God. But if there be no punishment of sin in another world, men need not be very much afraid to offend God and to go contrary to his will, and affront him and rebel against him and contemn and mock and blaspheme him. I say, if there be no punishment in a future state, men need not be much afraid of such things. God has provided but very little defense for the honor of his majesty and for the upholding of his authority. Men would not need to fear displeasing God any more if so much as to displease the magistrate. God indeed might bring temporal evil upon men, but we know some of the wickedest of men live a great while and live in prosperity. But if God should bring temporal evils upon men that offend, so can earthly kings bring all manner of temporal evils upon them that offend them. They can take away men's estates or banish them, keep them all their days in a dungeon or kill the body or put it to an exceeding tormenting death, and their displeasure would be as dreadful as God's if there were no future punishment. This may convince you, therefore, of the absurdity of such a supposition and of the unreasonableness of men's unbelief of eternal punishment. Number two. If there be no future punishment, then there can be nothing to restrain men from ruining and devouring one another. Conscience would not restrain from doing anything that they had a prospect of promoting their own interest by, if they were sure there was no punishment in another world. There would be nothing to restrain men from theft or robbery or adultery or perjury or murder or anything else, whereby any man had any prospect of his own wealth or pleasure. Mankind would devour one another. There would be no such thing as living in the world. The earth would be turned into a hell. And if you say human laws could restrain, but human laws don't reach men in secret, Whenever they had a prospect of doing of it with secrecy, that would be no restraint. And then there would be nothing to restrain them that are the makers of laws and have execution of them in their hand. There would be nothing to restrain kings and magistrates from destroying mankind to enrich themselves and satisfy their lusts. Now, it is unreasonable to suppose that that wise God that made the world would leave it without any manner of means of preventing its utter confusion and destruction. It can't be imagined that he that has placed mankind here in this world and governs the world should provide no manner of means of restraining them from continually destroying and devouring one another. Therefore, it is unreasonable to suppose that there is no future punishment. Number three. If there be no future punishment, then God has so ordered things that oftentimes it would really be for men's interest to sin against him. But it's very absurd to suppose that a wise and holy God should make it men's real interest to sin against him. 
but in many cases it would be so if there was to be no punishment hereafter. For oftentimes men have opportunity of enriching and advancing themselves and procuring their own wealth and pleasure by their sin. There have been many that have obtained kingdoms by treason and murder, but it may be, you'll say, though they outwardly advance themselves, yet they destroy the peace of their own minds. But what occasion is there for destroying the peace of their own minds if there be no future punishment? What occasion is there for them to distress themselves about it? If you say, though he has more wealth and sensual pleasure than the righteous man, yet the righteous end has inward and spiritual pleasure that is far better. But what foundation is there for spiritual pleasure to the righteous man if there is no future state? If he must die tomorrow and be turned into nothing, 1 Corinthians 15.19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most miserable. Therefore, if there be no future state, God has so ordered it, that in many cases it would be for men's real and true interest to sin against him, which is most absurd. Number four. Consider how unreasonable it is to suppose that such monsters of iniquity, as there have been some in the world, should forever go unpunished, though they die impenitent. There are some that got their living by murder and cruelty as highwaymen and pirates. There have been many cruel tyrants and bloody persecutors that have delighted in nothing more than in murdering and cruelly tormenting men, that have put many thousands of righteous just men to death, and only because they were righteous and virtuous, have roasted them to death, burnt them upon gridirons, flayed them alive, whipped them to death, have studied and contrived and set their wits to work to invent the most cruel ways of tormenting, sometimes would continue to lengthen out their torment for three or four days before they die, that they may endure the more misery, and have done so by all sorts without respect to sex or age, they have tormented men and women, have taken little children, and have roasted them to death before their mother's eyes. Now how unreasonable is it to suppose that such dying impenitent should go unpunished, should die and go out of the world as free as other men and never be punished for anything that they have done? But thus it will be if there is no future punishment in another world. One would think that those things should be enough to make it seem really true to you that there is indeed a future punishment for impenitent sinners, especially seeing that God has so plainly, expressly, and abundantly told us so, as he has, and has given his positive word that it surely shall be so. But secondly, that you may have a more lively, sensible apprehension of this punishment, I'll endeavor in some measure to describe it to you. Number one. When a wicked man dies, the soul is immediately seized on by devils. It is a soul that the devil seeks, all the man's lifetime by his temptations, and he, by devoting himself to his service, has, as it were, given his soul to the devil. The wicked man's soul is the devil's possession. He is his captive when he dies. The devil thirsts for the blood of souls, and it is only because God restrains him that he doesn't lay hold of the soul before death. But as soon as ever the man is dead, God restrains him no more, but then these hellhounds fly up on their prey. Those roaring lions do then lay hold, as it were, with open mouth. A good man, when he dies, is taken into the hands of good angels to be conducted to blessedness, as we read of Lazarus. So wicked men, when they die, are seized by evil angels. 
We read that the wicked servant in the 18th of Matthew, the 34th verse, was delivered to the tormentors. The devils are those tormentors. Number two, then the soul is immediately hurried down to hell, a certain place of misery, where there are many millions of miserably tormented spirits. There doubtless is a certain place where the greater part of the damned are together. We know that heaven is a certain place where the bodies of Enoch and Elijah and of the Lord Jesus Christ are. So without any doubt, hell is as much a place as heaven is. To this place the soul of the wicked when he dies is carried in among the rest of that crew, a place exceeding dreadful. There is, as it were, the blackness of darkness, a place contrived for misery and punishment. And when he comes there, he will see dreadful signs of torment and horror amongst that multitude that is represented by weeping, welling, and gnashing of teeth. There shall be the appearance of nothing but horror, amazement, and torment there. Number three, in that place God has some way of dreadfully expressing his wrath, of pouring of it out upon the soul as soon as it ever gets there, and upon all the spirits that are there. We don't know exactly how it is, but we know it is compared to fire, to a lake of fire, to fire and brimstone, to an oven, to a furnace of fire, which are made for extraordinary heat. It is compared to thunder and lightning. It is said that God shall rain fire and brimstone and an horrible tempest upon them. That is, shall destroy them by continual flashes of lightning, as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. It is compared to a stream of brimstone, that is, to a continual stream of lightning, and to the valley of the son of Hinnom, where their children were in a cruel manner burnt to death. There will be an extraordinary manifestation of God's wrath. Everything which they behold shall show tokens of God's anger and fury. They shall all be surrounded with it, and their souls filled brimful. Number four. The wicked soul will be tormented by devils. They are called tormentors in the forementioned place. They delight in the misery of men. That was what made him tempt man to fall at first, that he might make him miserable. And this makes him seek to tempt souls ever since, because he desires their misery. God restrains him in this world, but there he will be let loose to tear it as a roaring lion and to torment it as a scorpion or a dragon torments with their poison. If persons should see any apparition of the devil, they would be terribly frighted, especially if they had not that consideration that he could do them no more hurt than he is permitted. But in hell he will be under no restraints. God will not restrain them, but he may work the damned soul as much misery as he can. Number five. There will be no help to be had. We are taught that there won't be allowed one drop of water to cool their tongues. There will be no way in the world to be found out to have any help. They won't be able to help themselves. They won't find any friend that will be able or willing to help them. They won't have any God to go to and cry to. Here men, if they are in great distress, they can have this comfort, that they can go and spread their case before God and beg his help. But they won't have this help there. God will cast them out of his presence, and if they cry unto him, he will not hear them. Or if they cry to the angels or saints in heaven, they'll all be deaf. Number six. There will be no times of rest. They will be tormented day and night, and won't have a minute's respite. 
They would give all the world for an hour's rest, but it will not be granted them. Revelation 14, verse 11. They have no rest day nor night. Number seven. They will know that it will be so forever. They won't in the least expect there ever will be any end. They will utterly despair of ever having any help or any change. If they could think that after some thousands of years they might have help, it would be some comfort to them. But that they won't have. Number eight. They will be in a fearful expectation of the increase of their torment at the day of judgment. This makes the devils tremble and it will also make them tremble. They then will expect to be tormented in body as well as soul, to have every member and part of the body full up with torment, and so to continue thenceforward. Therefore be exhorted not to disregard the threatenings of future punishment, but realize it to yourself and take care now in this only opportunity to escape this punishment and let nothing, no worldly business or pursuit, divert you from this great concern. And consider how short and uncertain your life is and how long the future life. You would not be willing to trust your estate in a dependence upon another man's life. If he had some great bargain, you would be for having all things well settled soon, because you would say life is uncertain and I don't know how soon I may die. How can you venture your soul upon a dependence on your own life, which is every whit as uncertain? Men are not willing to trust their estates and dependence upon others' lives. If they have made some great bargain, they are for having all things well settled speedily because they say life is uncertain and they don't know how soon the other party may die. But yet they'll venture their souls into dependence upon their own lives that are every whit as uncertain because in one case they realize the danger and not in another. Supposing a man were to live two lives in this world, the one of fifty years and another a thousand years, and one were immediately to follow the other, and it was a known and experienced thing, and it was so with everybody, and we see instances of it, why everyone would think that it would be prudent to take care for a comfortable living in the life of a thousand years, though they neglected the first, shorter life. And why is it not more worth the while to take care that we are not miserable but happy in that life that is more than a thousand times a thousand, that will immediately follow this life, which to most that are adults is not above fifty years, and it is very uncertain whether half so much. The only reason why men don't take as much and abundantly more care is because they don't realize things in one case as they would in the other. In a sermon... The future punishment doesn't seem real to men. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. 
All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan hard drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.